It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we've got two interviews, actually, for the uh, show today. We've got David Harsanyi from the National Review. We'll be talking about Obamagate for a little bit of change of pace, uh, rather than all COVID all the time. The other interview is with Pastor Tim Rabin of Beacon Baptist Church in Raleigh. Uh, it is about COVID-related. This, well, <laughs> it's about the uh, it's about the churches that are now getting ready to sue the governor over the stay-at-home order and the disparate treatment that the uh, houses of worship are getting versus private sector businesses. So we'll talk with Tim Rabin about that. He was at the press conference in Raleigh uh, yesterday. want to thank the patrons of the show, like Andy, Monica, Meredith, Catherine, Joseph, Paul, Dennis, Lisa, and Sherry. I appreciate all of y'all becoming patrons uh, and supporting the show. And you too can become a patron by visiting com and clicking on the link at the top right. Uh, all of the links, by the way, are in the description of the podcast as well. So you can uh, click them directly uh, right here if you're listening on your favorite mobile device and podcasting platform. Um, the show is also made possible by sponsors like Mattress Man, uh, locally owned and operated for years and years and years. Chuck has been uh, revamping all of the operations since all of the uh, pandemic began, moving everything sort of online uh, so you can see all of the inventory that they have in stock. And everybody at Mattress Man wants you to know that they're doing everything uh, they can to make it safe and to open responsibly. By the way, you can not just shop online uh, and uh, go to mattressmanstores.com, shop online, but you can also uh, set yourself up with a private in-store appointment where social distancing will be observed and uh, they're only doing, you know, one guest or, you know, family unit at a time in the store. Uh, the card reader and the register are all sanitized after each and every use, and uh, they have single-use pillowcases that are provided for each visitor, okay? So uh, they make this as safe as possible for you if you want to go and sit on the mattress and, and talk with a sleep consultant about uh, what mattress is best for you, because everybody sleeps differently, you know? Do you sleep on your back? Do you sleep on your side? Uh, do you sleep on your stomach, standing up, on your head? Whatever it might be, everybody sleeps differently, and mattresses are designed differently, uh, and they help people differently depending on how you sleep. The, the sleep consultants can help you with all of that. Um, and if you shop online, you can get a 20% uh, savings by using the discount code RESTWELL, all one word, R-E-S-T-W-E-L-L, RESTWELL. Go to mattressmanstores.com. They have free local white glove delivery. Uh, also, a 120-day comfort guarantee. Okay, they ship anywhere, but if for some reason you're not satisfied with the mattress, the 120-day comfort guarantee means you can exchange it for free for a limited time. The 120-day comfort guarantee and, of course, the White Glove local delivery service for free. Experience the difference at Mattress Man, buy local, and sleep better. So here is what the governor said at his press conference this week. Uh, when asked about the churches 
and uh, their complaints that the retail outlets or, or big box stores that they're getting to reopen and they're allowed to have, you know, 20. Well, first it was what, 10 percent or 20 percent of the occupancy. And then they uh, took it up to 50 percent. You know, and if that's OK, or if you've raised the limit on funerals, then why can't you allow churches to uh, to resume worship services? And here is what the governor said at that time. What we're hoping is that ministers and church leaders will put the health of their congregations at the head of their thinking here in consideration of each other, realizing that it is still dangerous to hold indoor services when people, more than 10 people are there and those people are closer together. And we want to make sure that, that the people across this state are protected. One lawsuit has already been filed against the governor over his executive order, and another is in the works. There was a press conference organized by Return America, uh, a faith-based advocacy group located in Wahlberg, North Carolina, uh, and uh, the pastor who gave uh, the opening prayer at the press conference is Pastor Tim Rabin of Beacon Baptist Church in Raleigh, and he joins me now. Uh, Pastor, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well today, Pete. I sure am. Good to talk with you. Well, I appreciate you making some time for us. And first, I need to ask, what is Return America, and what is uh, your role or your church's role in this organization? Okay, Return America is um, is an organization was uh, started out of our uh, Christian School organization, North Carolina Christian School Association, and um, it is a ministry that seeks to uh, remind our North Carolinians and, and our nation of the freedom that we have under the constitutions of both the United States and North Carolina. And uh, my role uh, with the organization is I'm just a supporting pastor. Uh, there are churches across our state and across the nation uh, that support the ministry so it can carry on. And it's been involved in a a lot of different situations standing up, like young lady up in McDowell County who um, her, she was told to take God out of her paper and and one of the things. And, and they've stood, stood with a lot of street preachers and that have been brought to, um, to charge for preaching the gospel. So uh, the organization itself, uh, the president and founder is uh, Dr. Ron Beatty. And uh, Brother Beatty pastors in uh, Winston-Salem. He pastors the Berean Baptist Church there in Winston-Salem and has a board that uh, it operates under the authority of that board. So the lawsuit that was brought was actually brought by Return America, plus Dr. Beatty and his church, Berean Baptist Church, as well as a church in the eastern part of our state, People's Baptist Church in Greenville. Pastor Tim Butler. Is your church or you or either of y'all involved in the lawsuit specifically, named in the lawsuit, or just you're in a supporting role? Just in a supporting role. Um, Pastor Beatty had, I think it was two, 200 and something, I think 272 is the number I remember, of pastors that um, electronically uh, signed on for the petition that was delivered to the governor about three weeks ago, asking uh, for his um, clarification and intervention in allowing us to have indoor services. So what has it been like trying to minister in a pandemic for you? 
Well, um, it's it's definitely been different. I've been at <laughs> church uh, 39 years. I served on, on pastoral staff for 16 years. I've been the senior pastor for 23 years. So it separated me from people that I love dearly and, and uh, long to see. Um, you know, I mean, for instance, folks just going into the hospital and been unable to go in the hospital and see anyone go in, you know, pray with folks on the phone before they go into surgery, not in person. Um, you know, the Lord's been good to us and that we've not had a, a death directly in our church in these 10 weeks. And so I haven't had to do one of those funerals with 10 people uh, at a graveside. And now, of course, the governor's allowed 50 people inside for a funeral, uh, though we couldn't have 50 people in if we were having a service. But, uh, but um, you know, that's it's, it's definitely been different. We've gone digital. You know, everything's electronic. So we're on Facebook Live and we have our own YouTube channel. We have a, our website and we have an app. We're on Vimeo. Um, so great opportunity, uh, just our Easter services. We did it six times on Easter Sunday. It had um, over, I think, 47 states, 40 countries viewed it, uh, over 15,000 viewers. You know, so a great opportunity to preach the gospel, but um, not exactly like the Lord Jesus ex ex expected us to be. I, you know, he meant the, the churches to assemble. That's what Hebrews 10.25 says and not forsaking the assembling ourselves together. And, and Christians for the last 2,000 years have assembled, many of them at the threat of their life in, in communist countries. Uh, they've assembled because they knew they needed to come together for uh, worship and for the preaching of the word and for fellowship. So it's a, it's a different day, that's for sure, has been. Yeah. So you, you raised sort of the inconsistent application of standards there with the the funerals versus the services. And it, it at one point, uh, not at one point, at many points, Governor Cooper has framed this as a choice, it seems, between uh, holding services outside in a parking lot or in the church field or something, uh, going outside, uh, or packing everybody into the pews shoulder to shoulder, um, and those are the only options available. Is that a fair uh, explanation of the choices, or do you have in mind some other way that you would conduct services that would be safe and responsible? Oh, absolutely. We've already released our three-phase plan. Um, and so, you know, when we begin again, uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna section off every other pew, uh, trying to allow for the six-foot dis social distancing. And uh, we're going to seat people. Uh, family units are going to be able to sit together. But other than that, we're going to ask folks to sit apart from each other. We, we have ushers, but we've never had ushered seating as far as just seating people. You know, latecomers, of course, we've always ushered them to a seat that was available and easy for them to get to. But we're going to do ushered seating so no one just comes in and chooses where they want. We're going to dismiss by rows. We've never done that in a regular service that may have been done in a wedding or a funeral setting. And uh, we are not going to go back with our children's ministries. Uh, this point, uh, families are going to sit together and, um, and we're throughout phase one and phase two uh, of our reopening plan. Uh, we're not going to conduct children's classes or even our adult Bible study classes. And, hmm. and for the sake of cleanliness, uh, we're going to have an on-campus service 
on Sunday morning at 1030. And uh, just to ease everyone's mind, we're going to keep our Sunday night service uh, online at six o'clock through phase one of our plan. And then we'll come back on campus on Wednesday night at seven. And, um, and we're still not going to offer the children's classes. So a normal, normal Sunday at Beacon Baptist Church would be 930, would be Sunday school and uh, adult Bible study. At 1030 would be our normal morning service. At 1040, we have a bus ministry. We pick up uh, several, about two, 300 children, bring them to Sunday school. We won't run the buses for right now. Uh, we're not going to put anybody in a small closed in area so so that would be a normal Sunday but that won't happen until phase three of our program and then um and then Sunday night we come back together uh, I didn't what I didn't tell you on Sunday morning at 10 30 there are children's classes from birth through fifth grade and then on Sunday night uh, there are children's classes from birth to five-year-old that won't happen and then Wednesday night uh, not only do we have the auditorium Bible study but our teenagers have their own Bible study. Our college young professionals have their own Bible study, as well as all of our children of fifth grade and younger. So that won't happen right now in our phase one and reopening plan at Beacon Baptist Church. So all of those, uh, all of those uh, events uh, and classes, all of that stuff is is scrapped, and it's just the the worship service in the chapel. That's right. That's right. And we have an auditorium that seats sixteen hundred people. Right. So. You know, it's according to what what the capacity is placed on us, but we're you know we're we're not seeking. Will not we will not put this better. It's better to put it this way, Pete. We will not endanger the health and safety of our people. These are people I love. I told you a few moments ago. I've been here thirty nine years. So a lot of the people I pastor today, I held them the first day they were born. Hmm. Uh, I went to the hospital and held them in, in, in my arms. My wife and I visited with their parents, and now. Uh, those children are having children. <laughs> so, so I mean, in no way would I seek to endanger any of the members or attenders or guests. I'm, you know, I don't know how many guests will come to church right to start with uh, because of, of some of the fear that is among us. I, I, I preached in the month of April on Sunday nights in our live stream services. I preached four weeks on no need to fear. Uh, the scripture says God's not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind he said in isaiah 41 10 fear thou not for i am with thee i will help thee i'll strengthen thee i'll uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness and so uh, our god doesn't want us to fear uh, panic has spread across our land you know i was just reading uh, this morning of uh, how the um, alcohol use has risen uh, drastically domestic abuse uh, in our state, why? Because people are at home and fearful, and and the and the one place they could get help is the local New Testament church that preaches the Bible, and we've not been able to gather. Now we've we've reached out. I I could tell you testimonies of people who've reached out to us and never been to one of our services, but came on our live stream, and I'm glad for that. Uh, you know, I've been doing my counseling by phone. You know, uh, I have some some people I disciple every week. And so I have two of those scheduled today and uh, I'll do those by phone. Um, you know, it's just it's 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 just a, it's time. I, I know that some things needed to be taken place. And I understand that Americans don't respond well unless you put them in the fear mode. But 
but it's time <laughs> for us to meet again, you know, well, inside, I, inside. And, and I understood and I gave a lot of people uh, latitude that were making these decisions because they, they, we don't have any information. The, you know, at the very beginning, we had zero information, had no idea what it was about, what, how, how it spread, how bad it was and all this. And so, uh, yeah, we, we, we give a lot of benefit of the doubt to the, to the decision makers, but by this point now, uh, we we have some more data, right? We understand um, how it spread to some extent. We understand high risk, lower risk, and that sort of thing. Um, it, you mentioned that you care for your congregation, which I assume every pastor does. Um, and so, I guess I was. Have you heard what the governor has implored? of you as a pastor not to hold these services saying that you're going to he's, he he encouraged you to think about the welfare and health uh, of your of your flock right he made that appeal to you essentially saying that you're going to endanger all of these people and get some of them killed right and yes i i heard his response yesterday in his press conference um you know from the beginning pete there have been three guiding principles that uh, I have used as I've sought to lead our church. I shared with these with our deacons in our first phone conference call uh, not long after uh, the first executive order was issued on March the 14th. Um, one of those is respect for authority. I, I do believe the scriptures teach us to honor those in authority. And, and I've sought to do that. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not governor Cooper's enemy. Um, I, you know, I've, believe we've gone through the proper channels to try to get him to respond to us. Um, number two, I, I do believe that, well, I know that the Lord Jesus said, the first great commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Seconds like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So we have done what we've done because in the beginning, yes, we did not know what activity would endanger people and put them at risk. I, my own parents uh, my dad's 84 mm. and uh, has diabetes and is on dialysis and he lives in the state of Alabama and his, his state was able to go back to indoor services. And he said, I just don't think it's best right now. And I said, dad, I absolutely agree. I said, you just wait and uh, know a couple of weeks, see how things go. And you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be, I don't want to be foolish in any stretch of the imagination. And, and then, and then my third response was, we do want to be a testimony, we want to be salt and light. And I think in the early days, if we had violated the executive order, when people drove by and saw scores of cars on our parking lot, they'd wondered what those people are doing. And so, you know, we've sought to maintain a good testimony in our community. We've reached out to all of our neighbors. As a matter of fact, three closest neighborhoods to us, our staff went through, didn't knock on people's doors. We just hung a bag, told them we were praying for them, gave them our contact information, left them a $5 gift certificate to a local restaurant here, uh, the Dairy Queen that we knew was struggling uh, with their business. So we went and bought $358 gift certificate and uh, just trying to be a help and then be an encouragement to our neighbors. Mm -hmm. and and so, you know, we, 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 we're trying to do all we can to maintain um, the best testimony we can. But like you say, at some point, I mean, you know, I live here in Raleigh. I've been in and out of the Walmart, been in and out of Lowe's, Home Depot. And, um, you know, if, the, if they've got the understanding how to sanitize, I mean, we've, we now have bought uh, 
<laughs> foggers, electrostatic kind of foggers. We spent some money to have some of this stuff, but we're going to disinfect everything. Uh, we had a disinfecting uh, plan in place before this happened. We clean our facilities regularly, daily. Uh, we have a church school with 270 students. And of course, that's not been in session and we finish up the school year officially today. Um, but, you know, we, we understand what needs to be done. And if there are more guidelines, I saw today where the CDD, CDC had offered new guidelines for uh, places opening like restaurants, theaters, those kind of things, uh, summer camps. So, you know, I just read those this morning mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, we're doing those things and we will use hospital grade. We've already ordered hospital grade disinfectant for the fogger. You know, we're going to, we're going to do everything we can possibly humanly speaking that would protect anyone who would come on the campus of, uh, of our church. So at any point during the executive order shutdown during this last two months, at any point, did you consider maybe holding service at like Walmart or Home Depot? Like, cause if they're allowed to be. <laughs> yeah, I thought about going to the sporting goods department, you know, or something. <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend who said he, on Easter, he uh, he was this close to going and setting up uh, at a Lowe's and uh, and building a, a crucifix right there in the in, in the lumber section at uh, at Lowe's. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then the only I suppose all of us have joked about that a little bit. So. Yeah. So I do wonder though, you said you're gonna do ushered seating as well. Are the ushers prepared for the politics involved of where the folks are going to be sitting? I know that can get that might get kind of dicey at some yeah. point. <laughs> well, you know, you know how it is in church. Everybody's yeah. got their assigned seat. So exactly. some folks are just Folks are just, I mean, their seat may be the one blocked off, so they're just got their, <laughs> I think they'll all work with us. I, I hope they will. Okay. So. <laughs> well, Pastor, I appreciate your time. Pastor Tim Rabin of the Beacon Baptist Church in Raleigh. Uh, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Have a great weekend, sir. Stay safe. Okay. You too, Pete. God bless. You too. Take care. At the North State Journal, A.P. Dillon writes that the plaintiffs are asking for the courts to grant a concurrently filed motion for a temporary restraining order, a TRO, to declare that Cooper's orders are unlawful and to keep any official or similar from enforcing the order. They're also asking for damages as well as court and legal fees. The suit says that Cooper's orders uh, treat religious gatherings less favorably than similar secular gatherings. Also, this story out of WRAL's TechWire, the chief executive officer at Burlington-based life science giant LabCorp says that the current capacity for COVID-19 testing is sufficient to support a reopening of the United States economy. In an interview with CNBC this week, uh, the fellow's name is Adam Schechter, the CEO of LabCorp. He said, I'm not convinced that we have to, uh, that we need to have th two to three million tests per day. He says, I believe that we are ready to start to op uh, ready to start opening states uh, with the testing that's available. And that's only going to increase over the coming weeks. Citing the COVID tracking project, CNBC said that the U.S. processed almost 300,000 tests uh, just on one day and nearly 10 million tests since January. LabCorp is one of the firms that is marketing COVID-19-related tests. Uh, quote, I think it's still unknown exactly how many tests are going to be needed, Schechter said, but I do think different industries 
are going to look at testing differently, and even certain employers will look at testing differently for certain employees than for others. Indeed, the individual freedom to choose. It really is amazing how many times uh, people rush to do some sort of a government response when really what it requires is the freedom to choose, individuals making choices for themselves with the proper amount of information. This show is made possible by Schaefer Smith, scrambling to set up or improve your website. It can be overwhelming. It was for me. Uh, so let my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design help you out with logos, graphics, photos, and online store. He does search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security for professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs. Schaefer Smith. Make your site look professional, user-friendly, not just for your customers, but also for you. So you can get in there and do what you need to do with your website, and you can adapt more quickly. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. Also, the show is made possible by Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. If you are thinking of buying or selling your home, call the only agent that I would call if I were. That's Rowena Patton, 333-4483. That's 333-4483. She understands the COVID-19 times here have impacted everybody in different ways, and you may need to sell your home. Uh, But maybe you're thinking you can't even hold an open house right now. Good news, Rowena has offered walking tour videos of her homes since 2007 on every listing, just like the real thing. That means buyers can tour your home without having to leave their home. Start out with a video consult with Rowena at 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and then start packing. And the show is made possible by Old Grouch's Military Surplus. If you're looking to be prepared for disasters and pandemics and such, do you need some advice? If you're looking for real military surplus for more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It's an old school traditional store with a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim. He'll hook you up. You can also text him at 565-2497. That's 565-2497. You can make an order, ask about an item, get some advice. By the way, EMS, law enforcement professionals, if you're looking for uh, uniforms, send them a text. Make an appointment at Old Grouch's Military Surplus across the street from the anti-aircraft gun on Main Street, downtown Clyde, and at oldgrouch.com. David Hersani is a senior writer for National Review and the author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. And he joins me now to discuss Obamagate. Um, and uh, welcome, David. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank Good. you. Good. So tell uh, first, what is uh, the name of your piece is called Obamagate is not a conspiracy theory. So uh, maybe we should start with what is Obamagate? Is it about the tan suit? No, it is not. No. <laughs> that, that, that was the initial Obamagate. It was like Obamagate, too, I guess. But um, I don't actually like the term Obamagate because it's not just about Obama, and I don't like comparing things to Watergate all the time. It's a cliche, but that's the name that the Internet has chosen and uh, for, 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 I think, reasons on both sides. One, you know, sort of a reductive name for, you know, to blame one guy or to try to deflect that blame by by leaning on Obama because, if, you know, he's, he's well-liked on the left. But in any event, there's a real uh, massive, in my opinion, um, scandal here. And uh, I think that people who want to dismiss it as a conspiracy theory 
and all, you know are are wrong, and also they never actually take on or answer any of the questions you have, or most of them don't, about what went on in the Russia collusion investigation and, and uh, why it was okay. They can never really answer that. Brian Stelter at CNN is very upset that the right-wing media, he says, is focusing uh, on this Obamagate instead of all of the people dying from COVID-19, which I thought is sort of... Uh, pot kettle-ish <laughs> <Every Yeah. laughs> three years of <laughs> watching Especially CNN. CNN right? Yeah, right. right. Not just that they were obsessed with it, but that they got so many stories wrong, that they that they were, there was journalistic malpractice going on that they still haven't explained. I mean, they had stories that were completely wrong. And even if they corrected, and they didn't correct all of them, sometimes they did these sort of uh, faux corrections, but you're kind of like feeding a narrative, right? You're feeding the story. Even when you pull one of them back, you've like, you're creating this idea that, uh, you know, members of the administration, the president himself are, are, are seditious, you know, they're traitors and that they colluded with another country to steal the election. And they convinced a bunch of Americans that the election was stolen. And, and they still, yeah, to this day, believe that. Uh, I still encounter yeah. it uh, in, uh, you know, Facebook posts from people, you know, people that I know, real life people that, like really do believe that Vladimir Putin put Trump into the White House um, and uh, and helped him do it with the campaign and Facebook. It's like I say, these are, you know, the FISA warrants used were, you know, centered on fraudulent information that uh, the uh, document that propelled the whole investigation was a fabulous document. And they'll say, well, everyone knows Russia wanted Trump to win with China and Iran want Biden to win. So what, what does that mean? It doesn't have anything to do with, with abusing and weaponizing the, uh, the FBI and the DOJ to go after your political opponents. That is a massive conspiracy. The only thing I can think of that's come close is LBJ uh, using the CIA. I think the spy on Goldwater. Other than that, there's nothing like it. It's, much, it's, it's a much bigger uh, scandal than Watergate was in, in many ways, and uh, no one seems to care. The people who talked about it for four years don't seem to care anymore. Because well, it took a turn, right? I mean, like, right. I mean, the obvious explanation, right? Occam's razor is that it, it it doesn't help their position, whatever that position is, and their position they believe obviously is advanced by you know not Trump and by the Democratic Party or Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton, or I mean, even if it's just self-preservation at this point in order to not have to acknowledge or admit that they were taken for a ride, that they were, you know, played the fool by these leakers, these anonymous sources, quote unquote, that, you know, used them as the vehicle to distort reality. I'll give you just one quick example. There's a writer named Jonathan Chait, a New York magazine, you know, is a left-wing guy wrote a uh, like 10,000 word piece about how uh, Donald Trump might have been you know, just asking questions might have been a Russian asset since 1987. Yesterday I wrote or this week I wrote a column laying out the reasons I think Obamagate is a scandal. I mean I lay out maybe like six seven important I think facts or you know or, or things I think are facts to bolster my argument. And Jonathan Chait writes a piece mocking me for, for being a conspiracy theorist. The guy who, who, who says that Donald Trump was an asset from 1987. They, they want to move on, and then they want to gaslight you. And, uh, you know, all the big outlets, other than a, a, a couple of reporters, are in on it. Because this would be in, in the reverse. If this was, you know, a, a Obama who was president, this would be the biggest story that's ever happened in the United States. 
I mean, it would be they would be melting down. Well, I remember reading years ago when Obama was a senator and and then candidate for president. There there were pieces written by you know non mainstream reporters uh, and researchers that you know questioned whether Barack Obama was sort of this red diaper baby because of his pedigree and where he came from, his family members, and like all of that lineage and the stuff he talks about in his own book, right? Like there there, there were questions about that, and there was never any interest whatsoever in looking at that as there was with Trump and what the visit that he made to the Soviet Union years and years ago, and then the op-ed he wrote, and like, and that was proof for them that he was an asset. Uh, and now you've got the unmasking issue coming out, uh, which I want to ask you about. You've also, you mentioned the FISA warrant applications, which were uh, fabricated, riddled with errors, you write. Um, and it seems like if this was all just sloppiness or mistakes, they all go one direction. It's always one right. direction. Right. It's like the media. They always are making mistakes that skew in the same exact direction every time. It can't be a mistake then that that's just it's not possible that every mistake you make happens to, you know, feed the same story over and over again. So what is unmasking? Explain what this term means and why we should care, because there's a lot of press now in the last 48 hours about unmaskings. Well, you have the NSA listening in on conversations, let's say, and American to, to, you know, and American citizens get caught up in these conversations. These are, you know, foreigners who are being listened to, and an American gets caught up in that conversation, I believe. And again, I'm not a, a big, I'm not an expert on unmasking, but this is how I understand it. The, uh, you know, members of the intelligence community and people in the administration can ask to see who that is. Um, so the unmasking itself is not an illegal. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it could be an abuse of power, especially when I feel like you can use it in a way where you know you're going to be hearing certain kinds of people in certain campaigns, for instance, and then you start unmasking. So you have the U.N. ambassador numerous, on numerous occasions unmasking uh, you know, Mike, Mike Flynn. I don't really understand what, what, why she is involved in that at all. But maybe she has a good reason. I don't know. The problem is when you unmask someone and then you leak their name to the press to, to smear them and then to catch them in a, an innocuous conversation about lying in an innocuous conversation about completely legal conversation he has with the Russian ambassador and then railroading him for another case. So, that, you know, I don't know if that explains why I'm concerned about the the unmasking, which I'm not sure how often it's done. You know, I don't have a feeling for how often they do it. And, you know, so I, I don't know how abusive what we saw yesterday from CBS News is. It was my understanding that they changed the rules on who could ask for the unmaskings under the Obama administration, that it was way more limited. And then it sort of opened up the floodgates. And as soon as that happened, you had Susan Rice, who was U.N. ambassador, but... What was she, I'm trying to remember. What was she before the that? The power I was talking about, oh. I think, had the most un, uh, most of the unmasking, not Susan Rice. But I, I don't, yeah, I, and I, I don't know, I don't know about that. I think I did read that they did loosen loosen it. But I have to tell you, I mean, I'm sure that I shouldn't probably say this. I'm not sure about it, but it's likely that these people share these names, and it's well known among people who talk about these cases who is involved in them, right? So. You know, it's hard for me to believe that Samantha Powers and telling Susan Rice that um, the incoming national security advisor is caught on a tape with the Russian ambassador, things like that. And I think I read last week that the idea that they had to get Flynn because he was coming in as uh, the 
uh, DNI, right? I mean, he was coming, like he was going to be able to oversee uh, what was all, what all was going on with these unmaskings. He would recognize it. And so he had to be taken out first. Like that was the idea behind it. And like now, like that's a reasonable motive. Not that I know that to be true, but that's plausible. I mean, I've covered enough trials uh, in my life to know that like that's a that's a reasonable motive to submit to a jury to contemplate. It's plausible. But then, you know, I'm not sure that that was the reason it's plausible. But I, I have to say there's another theory I would say is that. You know, so Michael Flynn was involved with, like, uh, you know, Russian TV stations, and he was helping Turkey to some extent. Mm. And, uh, you know, those are, uh, I forgot what the, it's FARA, you know, you're not allowed to work for, for foreign, you know, it's not a Logan Act violation, but you're not allowed to work for foreign powers secretly. You know, you have to disclose it. Right. And he didn't do that. So, uh, you know, so a FARA violation. So the thing is, they... Like today, everyone's saying, listen, Michael Flynn has been terrible. He's doing these terrible things with other, other nations. Perhaps. So then the, the DOJ could have prosecuted him for the far more serious crimes, right? But they didn't. They didn't because they needed him and they wanted him to be part to keep this Russian collusion investigation alive. When he had these conversations, when he was lying, even the FBI agents wrote in their notes that they didn't think he was willfully misleading them. It was only 10 months later that they, you know, tried to get him to and listen this happens to people all the time every day in the real world they tried to get him to to plea to, to cop a plea so that they can use him in another case and uh, so i think that it's more more plausible that they wanted to keep the russia collusion investigation going than to get rid of michael flynn because they were already smearing him i mean obama i think told president trump to be careful about him so i think they were already trying to smear him and get him fired anyway mm. you're right in your but i don't know it's complicated yeah no i mean that that makes sense that that makes complete sense as well. Um, the, you write in your piece by 2016, 2016, the Obama administration's intelligence community had normalized domestic spying. How so? Explain how they had normalized domestic spying. Well, I don't know if people remember, but James Clapper lied to Congress when he claimed that the uh, that they you know that um, that you know that intelligence agencies weren't spying on the American people. They were, it turned out. I don't know if people remember, but John Brennan oversaw CIA that spied on the Senate over torture notes. The executive branch broke into the computers. The CIA broke, broke into the computers of Congress. I mean, that's, that's a huge scandal. He lied about that. Um, Eric Holder used the Espionage Act to, to spy on um, James Rosen, I think his name was, at uh, Fox News. Mm-hmm. The Obama administration spied on on Associated Press journalists. Can you imagine if Trump had done that? <laughs> and, and 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 in the end, so there's all that spying going on. They spied on journalists. I mean, this is what we know. I don't even know there could have been more more spying going on that we don't know about. Is it really implausible or surprising that the people who did all that would spy on the campaign of the opposition? You know, they probably didn't think they would ever get caught because they didn't think Donald Trump would win. But we have two. We have two agents talking about the investigation, literally saying it's an insurance policy in case Donald Trump is elected. Well, he did get elected. Uh, you're right. Also, we know that Barack Obama was keenly interested in the Russian collusion investigations progress, 
uh, even in, uh, uh, right up to like the last day, right, there was this memo that went out, which when I remember when this news broke, like th- this to me was, I mean, I don't want to say smoking gun, but like this to me was like, this is not normal. Um, this uh, Susan Rice email that she wrote to herself, although maybe, you know, maybe I should take this up. I should start writing daily emails to myself, reminding me to abide by like the executive orders from my governor to stay at home just in case uh, I need to remind myself of this. You know, the movie, uh, a few good men, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Jack Nicholson. So there's a scene where, you know, the dramatic scene where Tom Cruise sort of catches him in the lie where, where, because uh, I forget the general's name says, you know, everyone always listens to my orders. And then he says, well, why did you have to tell them separately to follow the code red if everyone listens to your orders? That's what this reminds me of. It's like Susan <laughs> Rice, her last hour in the office, she writes a memo to, to specifically stress that Barack Obama came in and said everyone should do, you know, everything having to do with Flint according to the rules or the book or whatever the quote was. Yeah. Well, are you telling me that you're sp- are you telling me the you know, FBI is spying on the opposition campaign, not by the book? Is that something that normally happened? Like, why would you have to stress for them to do it by the book? It makes no sense. And why would you have to tell us that in your last hour in the White House? Right. It's a very suspicious email. Listen, I'm not uh, a conspiracy theorist, so we don't exactly know for sure what that's about. But it's really weird. Yeah. Maybe they were wearing tan suits. And he just felt the need. He saw them all in tan suits and said, this could be a scandal. Do this one by the book, guys. Uh, that could be it. Um, is this the equivalent of chanting, lock her up, lock her up at Trump rallies? Like, Hillary's already lost. Like, why are you still chanting this? Is what I always think to myself. Like, she's already out the door. Who cares? In this case, you know, Obama's out of office. Like, why, why are we still caring about any of this? It doesn't matter. I appreciate your excellent segues, by the way. Um, <laughs> here's, here's why we should care. Here's why we should care. Well, I think that people are going to go out there and they're going to chant, lock him up about Obama, um, are not doing their case any favors. It's not really about Barack Obama. I think it's not completely about Barack Obama because he probably uh, oversaw some of this. The thing is this. A lot of the same people involved in that want to be president again. A lot of the same people who were in that administration are going to be in the next administration if Joe Biden wins. Joe Biden himself was an unmasker of Michael Flynn and involved in this. All those people spent four years spinning a conspiracy theory that that hurt the country, that delegitimized the election, that um, you know was weaponized against the president, whether you like the president or not. Those are things that matter for the historic record. Those are things that matter because these are the same people who want to come back in power. There has to be some reckoning. I mean, I, I can never, you rarely are going to catch someone in the act. It usually happens after. People tell me, like, they thought they were going to win. Why would they do it? And I point out that, you know, Nixon won 49 states in 1972. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he didn't have to cover up Watergate. He did, they didn't need Watergate. You commit crimes for all kinds of ridiculous reasons. Now, there might not be any specific crime because that's the big like gotcha now. Donald Trump, what specific crime did uh, you know President Obama commit? And Trump, of course, does himself no favors either mm-hmm. because he's you know over the top with everything he does. But there is no specific crime; it's just abuse of power. We don't know what he knew, and if it was the other way around, they wouldn't be asking the president what specific crime. They would be looking for a crime themselves because they're supposed to be journalists, but they're not acting like them. Well, it's funny, isn't that the very same argument they used against Donald Trump and the 
Trump supporters said, well, what's the specific crime? And they just said abuse right. of power, right? Right. And they could were allowed to impeach him for any reason they wanted. And one of the articles of impeachment was abuse of power because it, you know, the difference is they kept saying there was specific crime. So I would ask, well, what's the specific crime you're talking about? Because they kept saying there was cr- criminality, you know, and pointing to this law or that law. I'm not doing that. And maybe some people are. I don't think I think presidents are incredibly powerful so they can get away with a lot. There's no law that says Obama can't unmask someone. He can do whatever he wants, basically, to be honest. So it's, you know, that's why we have Congress. But he's gone. So now we have to keep hold other people accountable. You ran through, I thought, an important and interesting thought exercise in a follow up piece uh, called Cooking Up a Criminal Investigation the Obama Way. And you um, this is a very complex I don't want to say conspiracy at this point, right? But like this story is, it has a lot of actors. It unfolded over many years, and we're just now learning, you know, more details by the day. Um, but the way it worked, I thought you did a good job in outlining this, and you just basically like plugged in different people's names from the Obama administration, and just said basically if roles were reversed. So I'll ask you, devil's advocate, is that just whataboutism? Yeah, I'm. I've always been pro what about is and I oh. think that it's important. Yeah, I, I think that's important. <laughs> I think that's important to keep people um it, it's important to keep, make sure that people you know live by the principles that they want other you know that they expect you to live by. Now if you're if it's kind of what aboutism where you're like it's fine because your guy did it that's different. But if you're just pointing it out um and mine is almost like um preemptive what aboutism, right? Nice. So um but the point is that if because I keep hearing it's no big deal, so I just I, I just can't imagine that they would believe it's no big deal if if Trump was doing the same thing. It's it's for them. It's Donald Trump is bad. So anything you do to try to stop Donald Trump is fine. And that's not those that what that's the kind of thinking that corrodes norms. The very you know the very problems they claim uh, you know that tr- Trump has uh, brought on us. So yeah, yeah. I mean. I'll give you an example. John Kerry. I mean, John Kerry's out there. He's been in Europe. He talks to Iran. He's openly talking to Iran about saving the Iran deal, even though the president, duly elected of the United States, doesn't want the Iran deal anymore. So, I mean, if, if that's not a Logan Act violation, I don't know what is. And that's that's what the Flynn, you know, the Flynn, the, the the stated reason for the for investigating Flynn. So, it, you know, they would never want to live by those rules. I don't think. No. Def- well, look at the way they're treating Attorney General Barr's decision to drop the charges. Right. They're saying that Barr should, you know, uh, that he should be, he should be thrown out and uh, resign or impeached or whatever. Um, and that's undermining the rule of law. But could you imagine if Barr turned around and opened an investigation into Kerry for this? They'd lose their mind. I mean, was it? Yeah. I mean, and Barr, Barr handed it off to a, a, I forgot his name right now, the, you know, a U.S. attorney. Yeah. Um, and, uh, he found that, they, you know, whatever he found, and he dropped the cases. So now there is no one who wants the plea, not the person who pled or the person who agreed to it, neither side, but the judge decides that that's not good enough. I don't know how often that happens in the United States, but it seems pretty ridiculous to me. <laughs> well, we live in ridiculous times, David. So. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly partisan, and, you know, he's a clearly a partisan judge. And, you know, it's very – all these things, I think, destroy people's uh, – trust in governance. I mean that. I think that, you know, when, when they see how the, the, these institutions act, 
and how motivated they are by politics, it becomes harder and harder to trust anyone. And that is a re- that's really bad for society in general, but it's specifically bad for your, you know, the, the people who have power over us, like judges and government, you know, so you not to trust them at all. And uh, that's what's happening. Yeah, because this all of this only works because the vast majority of people agree to live together with a set of rules with the expectation we're all going to follow them and those who don't are going to get punished because if everybody ignores the rules there isn't enough law enforcement and jails to hold everybody right so uh, it only works if we all sort of accept the terms and if it becomes obvious that certain people get to enjoy life without accepting the terms eventually more people won't accept the terms either that's a problem it's untenable it's like the it's like the biden case with sexual assault allegations compared to Kavanaugh. It's not that, uh, you know, I try to make this argument. It's not that I think that Biden should be treated as Kavanaugh was. It's the opposite. I think we have to have a, a set, or, or, or maybe it's not, but we need to have a set of rules that we all treat everyone in, to some extent equally under those laws. And, and we don't. So people, it's untenable. People don't know, you know, it's untenable. At some point, Trump-type people or, you know, Trump exists, I think, because of those two sets of rules. They decided they wanted someone who was going to fight back or whatever and that's why we have it it's kind of a cliche but you know no i agree it's a consistent application of standards uh that i seek and i think a lot of people and then uh do as well and then they've just given up that that's going to be achievable and so now they just you know want to hire the biggest thug that they can hire to go beat up the other thugs (laughs) so that's where yeah that's where we are um so let me ask you finally um what are some of the the places I get I get asked this so I, I figured I'd start asking folks that I talk with uh, that are in the industry what are some of the places that you go to uh, to get your news and information reporters or outlets that you trust aside from National Review but where do you go? Well, I don't. Here's the thing: I don't really trust any outlet. What I do is uh, read what they have to say. And, uh, you know, and I realize that a normal person with a job, productive job, doesn't have time to do that, this kind of thing. But I mean, we have no, I have no choice but to read the Washington Post and the New York Times because these are the institutions or the outlets that have tons of money to do reporting. And then I, uh, you know, I try to do a little more research or read, read deeper in there and look, you know, put my filter on and because I know where they're coming from and then try to find out the truth. It's very difficult. But I mean, I read other, you know, I read the Federalist where I was. Uh, I read, uh, you know, Town Hall has some good reporters. I think I'm more inclined to trust certain people than I am, you know, a uh, an outlet. Yeah. So uh, it's a, like I don't have problem with uh, partisan partisan reporters. I have a problem with partisan reporters who pretend not to be partisan. That's really what my what uh, you know I I really look out for. So my answer is I don't really know. I guess I I look for reporters rather than outlets yeah people who have been right before well i will say it's one of the it's one of the reasons why whenever i quote stories um on the show i always give the bylines i try to always give the bylines because i want the audience to know who did the story so they can make determinations about the work that the person did uh themselves so cbs news like it's not particularly a place i trust but they have a reporter and her name escapes me now who used to be at fox news who does incredible work and i trust her you know, Catherine Harris. There you go. Yeah. I, so I trust her work, and she's done great work on on Flynn and, and the Mueller investigation, all that. And um and 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 so that's how I approach the news. So yeah. it's good. I think they read the bylines. Yeah. 
David Hersanya, senior writer for National Review and the author of the book First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. Uh, and you can read his work at nationalreview.com. David, always a pleasure. Thanks for your time today, sir. Stay safe. You too. Thank All you. All right. Take care. All right. And finally, uh, a good story, a feel-good story. In the midst of this pandemic, there is um, a gymnastics school. It's called Old Town Gymnastics Academy in Winston-Salem. And it faced the possibility of closing its doors when the owner, Dawn Nelson, was unable to get one of those federal loans from the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program. She had spent her savings trying to give the Gymnastics Academy uh, uh, a chance to survive, to keep it alive, and was nearly forced to lay off all of the staff, permanently shut down the business. Her husband is an Army veteran who served in Iraq and Guatemala and the Balkans, and he decided to put his bronze star up for sale online with the hopes uh, to get $100 to help keep the gym afloat. Command Sergeant Major Alex Nelson earned the bronze star, uh, which is awarded for brave and heroic action in a combat zone in 2008 for leading more than 160 missions to defuse roadside bombs. Sergeant Nelson was in luck. He got a buyer pretty quickly. The buyer showed up at the gym, purchased the Bronze Star. Nelson said, quote, It meant a lot to me, but the Bronze Star is just a material thing. What really means the world to you is your wife and your children. We all have to sacrifice in times of need, and now is one of them. The man um, who bought the Bronze Star was Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, who immediately turned around and gave it back to Nelson. Forrest said, quote, as soon as things started to shut down around North Carolina, we realized this was going to be pretty bad. We started to know people personally who were losing their jobs instantly. We had restaurant owner friends who were struggling to stay open. And we said, you know, we're going to put the campaign on hold. And so he did. He suspended campaigning and fundraising in order to help those in need. Lieutenant Governor said that they have given around $200,000 worth of support to the community so far. He said, quote, no one should have to pawn off their war medals to make a living. That's it for us for the week. If you appreciate the content, you want to support it, uh, subscribe to the podcast. I appreciate that. Give it a thumbs up. Uh, also, consider becoming a patron of the program to get cool stuff, exclusive content. It's all at thepetecalendarshow.com and in the description of the podcast. Thanks so much for your support. Talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. <laughs>